What I'm about to tell you, it's weird. You might need a moment to really digest it, and I'll give you a moment after I tell you. But first, look around you. Look at the panorama of objects, colours and shapes in your field of vision right now. That picture, it's a forgery. Your eyes are not actually seeing that right now. Your reality looks very real, about as real as it gets, but it's not. But don't take it from me, take it from this psychology professor. You look around you and you have this sense that everything is out there in clear focus, a completely stable representation of the space around you. And yet if I tell you that that is constructed from short fixations, your eyes are constantly moving about and they're sampling information from these various locations, we only see clearly what's in a very small focus of clear vision, what's called foveal vision, so where your eye is directed. It gives you about one or two degrees of visual angle where information is nice and clear and crisp. Everything around it is blurry. And so what we're doing constantly, our eyes move around every 100 to 200 milliseconds and it just samples this high-resolution mosaic of locations around you and we know that at any one time, the only thing that's in focus is that one or two degrees of vision that you're directly looking at. And yet, somehow, you have this sensation that everything is crisp and fully in focus all around you. And that cannot be physically. That's not what comes into your brain. It kind of blows your mind. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where I tell you stories from and about the digital age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. It's like we're living inside the world's biggest optical illusion. Pretty much. <laughs> Incredible. Inside the biggest world sort of theatre. In a sense, your brain is constructing all this and projecting it on some kind of a screen. Dr. Irina Harris runs Sydney University's Visual Cognition Lab. So that amazing illusion that makes our lives look like an IMAX movie, not everybody has that. How I see the world, it's just in bits. So it's a complete neglect of everything else with an over-focus on one thing and losing the rest. So if you were to focus on a bit of something and lose everything else, you can never, ever be able to actually bring all those bits and pieces together to form a coherent whole, which then would give you an image you could stabilise and retain. Paul Isaacs lives in Oxford in the UK, and he was born with this condition. My mum thought I was deaf and blind because that is how I behaved externally. I could not grasp the whole of objects, of people, of rooms, my visual environment was always neglected by the fact that I could not bring it all together. It's a neurological condition called agnosia, which is Latin for lack of knowledge. His brain struggles to make sense of what his eyes are seeing. Are you able to describe what those pieces look like? Are their colours or their shapes? Colours and shapes. So if I was to focus on a chair, if you see it in its entirety you begin to 
mentalise it maybe or give it a context. It's something to sit on. It's something to relax in. It's something that you pull up when you have your tea. But of course, if you see things in bits and you don't see things as semantically meaningful, then you may only see a leg. You may only see a seat. You may only see a bit of the wood that's on top of the chair. Mm -hmm. But you can't bring those pieces together to form a coherent whole. If I can't see things visually and with meaning and I see things in pieces, the next best thing I can do is experience the chair, where those pieces connect through my fingers, through my hands, through my mouth. I used to, you know, spit on my hand, the saliva would sensitise the palm. And then you move my fingers across it. Is it rough? Is it smooth? How does it connect? And that gives you a sort of reality, at the very least, of someone who's so perceptually blind that they need to actually do that in order to get a sense of a reality of something that is in front of them. So rather than a chair being, like you said, something comfortable to sit in or something convenient at all, a person like yourself might see it as something smooth or something rough or something that's a nice colour or something with an interesting shape or relate to it in ways that don't look at perhaps the intention of the person who designed the thing. That's correct, yeah. So context is missing. Paul's brain was damaged around the time he was born. There were medical problems late in his mum's pregnancy and Paul's brain was deprived of oxygen. When did your mum realize what was going on in about six months of being born she thought i was brain damaged which is partly true paul also has autism i would sit down play with a puzzle piece eat my food and in between sitting down i'd be running and that would be my day at preschool so i wasn't aware of other people in a typical sense because of the language deficits because of the visual fragmentation, because of the distortions and information processing delays. I didn't have a self-awareness of being, for want of a better word, different until I was about 16. When I was younger, I used to do things that may have been considered socially odd or weird or inappropriate, such as sculpting a person's face. So that is their face, and I remember it through touch. Uh, Going through the hair, I mean, that is how I used to recognise my parents. So when you say sculpting someone's face, you would literally put your hands on their face to identify their features? That's correct. Yeah, I used to do that a lot with my father. So almost like a blueprint, like my mother was hair, because she has curly hair like myself, so... It was interesting to explore the world in that way because it's the only way I could gain a level of meaning at that point in time. I can remember, or rather my mother can, I was playing in the garden and I was just running my fingers through the grass and I caught onto something that felt nice and... I whipped it up in the air and started spinning it round. 
Now, my mother looked out of the window in horror because it was next-door neighbour's cat <laughs> that I had by the tail, and he, the cat was going round and round like a windmill. Mm. Now, now, of course, that is a very cringeworthy and very, <laughs> very horrific thing to see. I wasn't recognising that it was a cat. I wasn't seeing that it was a cat. I just felt this fur this nice feeling and wanted to play with the feeling I wasn't consciously harming an animal nor wanting to I didn't get to the level of significance that I knew it was an animal somebody who has this higher level deficit we call it associative agnosia because the problem is in associating a percept to its meaning would probably see objects as coherent entities, but just would know what they are. So they would look like completely novel entities to this person. You know, would look at an apple and just think, well, I can see it's something round and it's green, but I've never seen anything like that before. I don't know what it is. Whereas somebody with a deficit at a, a lower level of the visual system, so we might call that an apperceptive agnosic because they have problems in putting together a coherent percept, might only latch on to details of an object. So they might see a part of an object and come to the wrong conclusion about what the object is. So, for example, um, they might look at a tennis racket and just see the netting and think, well, that's a fencing mask because it kind of looks like a fencing mask for them. It's often very difficult to know exactly what they experience and they themselves find it very difficult to describe their deficit. The brain's visual system works in a hierarchy. In low-level, early stages of the brain's visual system, the neurons, the brain cells there, respond to very simple information like points of light, edges, lines of specific orientations. And then as you move further down this hierarchy, they become responsive to more complex information like starting to put edges together, forming simple shapes, maybe conjunctions of shapes and textures. So at what we call intermediate levels, maybe parts of objects. As you move further along this hierarchy, then you get very specific responses to whole objects and sometimes even very specific objects. Paul's brain seems to struggle to reach the end of this hierarchy. Colours and shapes, bits, legs, seat, the wood. Hang on, hang on. Let's stop the show here. This show isn't about the brain. It's supposed to be about digital stuff. All right, look, give me a second. I'll see how I can tie this in with computers or robots or something. You're listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or any other podcast app. All right, I've got it. So we're talking about vision, right? Here's a man who's teaching computers to see. Huh? We're trying to emulate... Uh, functions of the biological side, biological vision into computers, computers that can see. Still pictures, collections of pictures, like those you can find on social media, videos, amateurial videos, edited videos, movies, all can work. Hi, I'm Massimo Piccardi. I'm a professor in the Faculty of Engineering and IT at UTS. I've 
worked for a number of years in what is known as video surveillance, which is the development of systems that can be placed, for instance, in public places to detect behaviours, objects of interest for the community, potentially also terrorism, detecting movements of crowds, dangerous aggregations, dangerous for people physically, for safety, not for security. Well, I remember for me a moment I was in Italy, back in the University of Bologna. My topic was called edge detection. You were given just like natural images, normal images, and you would have to find all the edges of the objects. I kept on working with a few images for months, over and over. Suddenly, uh, these edges came up perfectly, like as you had drawn them yourself. And that was really, I said, wow, this thing can actually work. That was 1991, because I have a certain length of tooth. Remember what Irina, our psychology professor, said about the hierarchy of how the brain processes vision? Very simple information, points of light, edges, lines to more complex information, edges together, simple shapes, conjunctions of shapes and textures, intermediate levels, parts of objects. Further along, whole objects, specific objects. Well, it's still a mystery how the brain actually does this. We don't understand enough about how the brain does vision to really know how to build a system that emulates the brain. And nobody really understands Paul's condition and exactly what's going wrong in his brain. In fact, agnosia is just an umbrella term. The disability takes many different forms. We don't understand the brain well enough to know what's going wrong. And it's that same lack of understanding that means we can't program a computer to see the way we do. But in the 1970s, computer scientists thought, what if we go about it the opposite way? So first, we identify the... Specific objects whole objects, intermediate levels, parts of objects, conjunctions of shapes and textures, simple shapes, edges together, very simple information, lines, edges, points of light. The traditional way to approach this um, was basically to a scientist died prematurely called David Maher and other people in his generation in the 70s who thought of this as a hierarchical process is the most obvious way to start saying, okay, instead of trying to solve the final problem in one go, let's divide it into layers. So let's first find all the objects by local operations between small groups of pixels, not trying to involve the entire image at once. Once we found the objects, let's try to measure the fundamental properties, like how big they are, what color are they, and started indexing some databases that starts framing hypotheses what the objects may be, and then starting indexing the relationship between these objects until you can finally distill the last few things that you actually want to extract from this mass of pixels. Sounds like a lot of work. In fact, breaking down objects this way is so much work, the brain itself doesn't even really bother doing it. Uh, when the brain needs to work backwards, it uses shortcuts. The brain pulls predictions from a database of things it's seen before. If you glance at a table and see something round and orange on top of it, your brain will probably use a neural shortcut to see what it expects to see. An orange. Based on the squillions of times it's seen similar oranges on similar tables. The thing that we're starting to understand more and more is that while the brain does that on the one hand, it also has a very large kind of feedback mechanism where information flows not only from low level to high level parts of the brain, but also back from the high levels to the lower levels. And so it's now become increasingly obvious that in fact, what the brain also does is to constantly predict and make guesses about 
the visual information that's in front of it. And so then pattern recognition becomes this much more complex problem of not just building a percept from simple information into more complex parts, but also constantly checking and rechecking and coming up with hypotheses and then going and interrogating the visual input to see whether it, it matches some of these predictions and hypotheses. This approach of creating neural shortcuts works so well that computers have started doing it. The approach computer scientists are taking is this. Humans give the computers a few million pictures of oranges, tell them that's what an orange looks like, and now computers, you're on your own. The computers decide for themselves what the common features of an orange are. Round, orange, round, orange, round, orange, round, orange, round, orange, round. Using sheer brute force. You give them the 8 billion pixels to say. You state what you want to say about those pixels, like a human annotates that video. And you do it for thousand videos or million videos. And then you put everything into a deep learning system. And the accuracy of these systems at predicting new videos is, is almost unrivaled these days. So this idea that we need to understand the process stage orchestrated to a degree and engineer it into blocks, the composition, the typical approach of the engineers and scientists, now decompose a big problem in two parts. Even if you not get, get the best the real global optimum, but you're going to get a decent solution, is being challenged by new approaches. These deep learning approaches are really brute force. Google has tens of thousands of computers who continuously churn data to try to train the neural networks to make correct predictions of a human tag, a face, a video class, and the like. Scientists call this kind of system a black box, as in, we don't know how it works, but we know it works. You put a problem in one end, let it do whatever the hell it does, and take the answer out the other. Does that mean that these computers are looking for correlations throughout the data and just building millions and trillions of networks between these correlations. Yeah, so, so the, the neural networks have, um, are a product of the 60s, even earlier, but technology has made them possible these days in large scale. And the idea is to not know how the human brain works in terms of cognitive thought, uh, but to just try to put together hardware that mimics the way the human hardware, the brain, is, is, is made of. So, the way, so basically to create synapses neurons and excitation or, or uh, stimulation to these neurons and responses. Try to have these responses to be similar to those of our biological brain and hope that this will be through a process of basically reward, presentation of an input and reward, be able to be trained like a human is trained through biological evolution. Mm -hmm. that children give them a reward for a good action and it's possible that through this brute force approach that computers are actually reinventing the computer scientist's traditional strategy of looking at objects and breaking them down to their individual components or their basic features. Or maybe it comes up with a new way. It might even end up teaching us something about our own brains. Neural networks, we assume, are doing something similar, just they do it through internal layers that may come into correspondence with something meaningful to us or may not. And once a computer is capable of doing this, it can do way more complex stuff. I still find it surprising if I look from a certain distance about this technology, the idea that what, what is a video is just a mass of pixels. Mass of pixels means a mass of numbers. 
and you start looking a bit like Neo into these numbers, if you visualize them, they mean absolutely nothing. But through algorithms, you can start to segment the video into parts where a primary activity is conducted and segment the video into actors. Actors are the people who are in the video. They're not deliberate actors, but they're just agents. And you are able to understand what each agent is doing. Are they holding a cup of tea? And then you could obviously infer they're drinking. So the same thing, interaction between multiple people. You can see whether they're interacting, whether they are talking. You can even detect a fight. You can detect lots of things in a video. All of that with good accuracy these days. You can't say what the accuracy is in absolute numbers, but you could say if the video is good, you can get 90, 95% accuracy of these categorizations. Years ago, Massimo created a program for use in airport security using lots of photographs of luggage. A large part of the scene never moves. That part of the scene is um, the background. Any scene has a background. So at some stage you see that this background from all the movements of the people changes. And then you can immediately spot the change. Then you put it against a database of shapes. Starting looking at the shape, the form factor could potentially be a piece of luggage. Abandoned deliberately or not deliberately by its carrier. Then you will try to go back, analyze the video back from the moment where the object has been introduced in the background scene and look if you can identify the carrier. Then you will look in the frames following, is the carrier still around, has he left or she left the scene? If that's the case, you can flag an alert. Mm-hmm. That said, could be a false positive, but if there are not too many false positives or too many alarms, someone can review them quickly. Computers will make plenty of mistakes, but so will your brain. Often the brain does things that it shouldn't do. It makes kind of weird and wonderful mistakes. And those mistakes are also part of how we perceive the world. Often we don't perceive the world veridically, like, you know, as a true representation of what's out there. As I said, the brain does a lot of reconstruction and often it makes mistakes. How does the visual system deliver you this completely wrong perceptions in many ways? Um, And it often takes shortcuts it fills in information that's not there. Yeah, as I said, it makes guesses. The robot learns from local rewards. It's like a person um, in a dark room learning where to go by groping. And you, get, you don't know where to go a priori, but by hurting yourself or finding reward locally, you can learn the best way to navigate through an environment. And the same way, I mean, that's the brain behind the computer. So it's this learning from reward... We feel heat, we feel pain, we feel lots of things that basically instruct us to do certain things in life or not do certain things in life. And computers don't have the same, um, I believe, physiological pain, or maybe I don't know, but I don't think that's... So you try to basically mimic the same type of reward and loss functions. Round orange... Round orange... Round orange... Round orange... Round orange... I put my hand out and I feel my wallet, so therefore it is my wallet and I know I'm ready to put it in my pocket. I still like things to be on show, so in my room I like to have things that are of significance in a place where I know they're going to be and I can pick them up. And if I move that place, that context, at least 
is always going to be on a surface. It's not going to be in a drawer. It's not going to be in a cupboard. So I still need to do things like that. Four years ago, Paul came across a shortcut of his own. He got specialised tinted glasses that help him see whole objects. I could see my family's faces as holes, which obviously is quite moving and relevant. I could see my friends' faces as holes. I could see my back garden as a whole. I could see places I used to pattern out with my movements as tangible things rather than bits. So, yeah, it had a dramatic impact on my life. Do you remember how that made you feel? Um, I think it moved me somewhat um, in the sense that I was overwhelmed at what things looked like as whole pieces of information. So I think I was emotionally overwhelmed by it and moved by it, obviously, with close members of the family in particular, very much so. He says the tinted lenses filter out some of the light and colour. They simplify things. What the glasses actually do is they bind everything together. So all the fragmentation means that um, when I put the glasses on, it was quite moving because then I could see things as tangible things. So I could see faces as holes. I could see my garden as, as a tree I looked out and I, re- you know, I could see it all connected to trunk, the leaves, the branches. I still cannot retain visual information very well, so I can't mentalise stuff. Tell me what happens when you go outside, uh, when you run into somebody and talk to them. How is that different for you? Well, even though I've got the glasses, I still rely on the voice of the person, the patterns of movement of the person, because if they're out of a context that I don't usually see them in, I have to rely on other sensory and modular inputs. So that would be a voice, how they sound, how they move, so patterns of movement, and also contextualising. If I'm really struggling with knowing who that person is, then I may ask some questions that are significant. Sometimes as directors, who are you? I can remember an incident in a supermarket where a lady said my name and I just said hello and I was on the phone to my mum. I clocked her movements and she was at the checkout and I said, who are you? Which is probably not the best way to start (laughs) the conversation. And she gave me a context and I said, oh, now I know who you are. But I don't blame her because she she actually unfriended me on Facebook. Paul's written five books and he speaks publicly about autism. He also draws. And I draw faces, people I draw, costumes. So they look unusual, colours. It's hard hard to describe because it's surrealism. I suppose that the characters look androgynous. And is that something you would have been able to do without the glasses before? oh, I'd make a conscious decision to make it as unusual as possible to do the drawing without the glasses. Oh, you do them without the glasses? Yes. <laughs> so yes. does that mean that you're operating from memory in some sense or, or for, that you're not totally using your vision? Correct. I'm just creating something. So I have no preempted format. I'm just doing 
and once the doing is finished, then the work is completed. You still trust your sense of touch or you identify more with your sense of touch than your sense of sight? Absolutely, yes. In the sense of physical placement, if something's moved, I can sort of forget what it is or lose significance of what it is. Mm -hmm. And of course, that makes you look a bit stupid if you're baffled by an object that everyone else knows what it is, but you're kind of trying to figure out what it is. And what sort of things were you getting up to after you got the glasses? A very simple thing was I've got a two-weekly meet-up with friends at a Wagamama restaurant in Oxford. And that whole journey, I was looking out the window at the landscape because I travel there by bus. I was just looking at the world all connected and just silently observing and also when I got into Oxford seeing things more tangibly, looking at buildings and you know not seeing brick here, a brick there, uh, a window here, a window there, just actually bringing everything together, seeing that when a person walked I could see their whole body moving rather than just bits of their body. I was looking at people's faces, noticing faces, because I could see them as holes. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by typing in Think Digital Futures into iTunes or any other podcasting app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Talk to you next time.